Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We'd like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Laura Prescott at St. Paul Public Library, St. Anthony Park. Laura Prescott belongs to the small, exclusive club of authors who have had their work optioned for film. While this is an impressive accomplishment on the face of it, still fewer writers can claim to have reached this milestone before their first book even hit shelves. Prescott's highly anticipated literary debut, The Secrets We Kept, premiered in September. It tells the true story behind the writing, an incendiary publication of the Cold War-era novel Dr. Zhivago. Now a mainstay of Russia's literary canon, Dr. Zhivago is a tale of life and love set during the Russian Revolution. Penned by controversial Soviet national Boris Pasternak, the manuscript was smuggled to Italy in the 1950s. Prescott's retelling received rave reviews. In a starred review, Bookless opined, Spy stories offer high reader appeal, but Prescott's debut far surpasses the typical genre fare. Through extensive research, Prescott artfully illuminates the CIA's role in helping disseminate the Soviet band masterwork. The Secrets We Kept debuted in a staggering 28 languages. A film treatment helmed by Oscar-nominated producer of La La Land and Bridge of Spies is now in the works. Thank you, that was so nice. I feel so embarrassed when people say nice things about me. Um, but this is such a great welcome. I'm so happy to be here. I was joking that this is the first time I've used my winter coat since I was doing my research trip in Moscow. Um, so I'm glad it's getting put to use because I live in Austin, Texas now. And it's actually got really cold yesterday, so it's, it's everywhere. Um, but yeah, I love um, Minnesota. I've only been here once, but I had such a relaxing and fun day here in St. Paul on the radio this morning that, and seeing just like this packed audience on this freezing cold night has just like really warms my heart. So thanks so much for being here. Um, and I'm gonna tell you a little bit about kind of the hidden story behind Dr. Zhivago and how I wrote my book and show you some things that I've collected during the writing process of my book. Um, this is actually a, a picture of my copy of Dr. Zhivago, um, but I'll be showing you many more. Um, basically, my husband is really good at eBay and, and actually surprising good at uh, Russian auction sites. So I got a lot of um, Christmas and birthday presents that were related to writing in my book, which I'm eager to show off. But yes, so thanks for having me. Um, 
has anyone um, read my book before? Or I'm trying to gauge for spoilers. Okay. Oh, wow. Great. Thank you. <laughs> um, so those of you who haven't heard of it or read it, my book, The Secrets We Kept, is a work of historical fiction. It's set in the 1950s, and it's about a group of women in the CIA's typing pool and the fate of Boris Pasternak's masterpiece, Dr. Zhivago. Um, some of you may be more familiar with Pasternak's novel or the David Lean film adaptation. So I want to see a show of hands of who's read Zhivago. Wow, it's pretty good. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and it's interesting because um, this is kind of um, the mix that I've been seeing as I'm giving talks around the United States. But I was just in Italy last week. And I'd say like 99% of the audience in Italy has read it just because it was like such part of their curriculum in history, as you'll find out soon. Surprising history. Um, and how many of you have seen the David Lean film? Now, that's, I think that's more um, of interest because the 1965 film adaptation, in my opinion, is one of the best film adaptations of all time. Um, even if it goes a little bit more into the romance and less into the war stuff. But um, that is, you know, why, kind of the seeds of why I started writing this novel. So I just want to, here's a really cool behind the scenes shot of the filming of the David Lean film. We have Julie Christie, Omar Sharif, and this beautiful picture. But yeah, it's, it's you know, thinking about film adaptations and maybe if my, move, my book gets turned into a movie or film, I mean, this is like the highest standard of all, so who knows what will happen. <laughs> um, but I will say the inspiration behind my novel goes even back further um, than me having seen the movie, and I mean way back. This is my parents <laughs> before I was around. Um, so I have my parents to thank for naming me after Boris Pasternak's heroine in Zhivago, Lara. Um, my mother had absolutely loved the David Lean film. And as a child, knowing nothing about the book or the movie, I'd keep winding up her musical jewelry box again and again and again. And it played Lara's theme. I'm sure some of you are familiar with Lara's theme. Or the Frank Sinatra version of Lara's theme. <laughs> Um, and I think I broke, actually broke her jewelry box. She says it doesn't play anymore, um, but she still has it. Um, and, but over the years, I've, I've read Zhivago when I was 15 years old, and I was kind of in my Russian literature phase of reading Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Chekhov. And I finally took that red and black book down off the shelf and read it to see what I was really named after. And every time I've read this book, it's one of those books that you read, you know, every few years I kept reading and reading it and getting something different each time. And as a girl, I was most interested in the love story because I had been primed with the movie. So I always found myself flipping through the book and trying to get to Yuri and Lara and seeing what happens to them or is Yuri going to be with Tanya or Lara? And I was so shocked to see this isn't just a love story, this is a war story. This is um, talking about things that went over my head um, the first time I read it. And later, um, when I was working in Washington, D.C., I used to be a political uh, consultant writing stump speeches and advertising. And when I read Chivago during my D.C. years, I had already found out that this novel was something that had been banned and was subversive and hadn't been published in the USSR until 1988, even though it was written and published in Italy in 1957. 
And so when I was in this DC political phase, I was kind of scouring the book and seeing what made this so subversive. Why was this banned? Um, and then, you know, after my DC years, I came away from the experience pretty jaded, as one might uh, become after being in politics for too long. And I wanted to become a fiction writer, which was my lifelong dream since I was a little kid, and submitting my little stories and poems to Highlights Children's Magazine <laughs> and getting rejected. <laughs> um, I, but then I read it again, and I, I read it through the eyes of a writer and looking at Boris Pasternak's sentences. Um, and Boris Pasternak's sentences, he was a poet. And so looking at it on the line level, of this beautiful language he used, and thinking about it in that aspect was, gave me this whole other view of the novel. But again, on my most recent readings, I, right before when I was started writing this book, I was really struck by the way that Pasternak conveys the importance of three thought and talks about the dangers of groupthink. I don't know, it might just be the sign of the times that I was so interested in and what he had to say about groupthink. But through the life of Yuri Zhivago, Pasternak demonstrated that the yearning for freedom remains an indestructible force in spite of the political systems that seek to repress it. This is an old propaganda poster about the Russian Revolution, in case you couldn't tell. What it says, I do not know. Um, I had it written down, and I've lost that note, but we can assume it's uh, against the, the intelligentsia on the other side. So I'm going to read just a little tiny excerpt from Zhivago, just to kind of paint what made this so subversive to the Soviets. No single man makes history. History cannot be seen, just as one cannot see grass growing. Wars and revolutions, kings and Robespierre's are history's organic agents, its yeast. But revolutions are made by fanatical men of action with one-track mind, geniuses in their ability to confine themselves to a limited field. They overturn the old order in a few hours or days. The whole upheaval takes a few weeks or at most years. But the fanatical spirit that inspired the upheavals is worshiped for decades thereafter for centuries. So in 1950s Soviet Russia, these were indeed subversive ideas. There's Bor a young Boris brooding poet Pasternak. <laughs> and at the time, Boris Pasternak was one of the most famous living Soviet authors. Um, he was so, he was like the Stephen King <laughs> of the Soviet Union. Everyone knew him. His readings would sell out to absolutely huge packed auditoriums and his fans would stand and shout lines of his poetry before he could even finish them. Um, and his good looks didn't hurt either. Um, and Zhivago was to be his first novel and it was actually his only novel. And he, was, he took years to write this novel and the way that Pasternak wrote was he would write a little bit and then he would hold these like literary salons on Sunday nights um, with supper and read to his friends and his peers and get what they thought. So he was writing and reading, and soon everyone knew that he was writing um, this novel that could be seen as subversive. And once the Kremlin found out about it, um, they, they got word of Zhivago's themes, and really it's critical depictions of the October Revolution and the Russian Civil War. But it wasn't just that he was critical of the revolution. 
In fact, some of the characters are not critical of the revolution. It was more that different characters had different opinions, including Yuri, the main protagonist of Zhivago himself. He would sometimes think this was a great thing and sometimes think it wasn't a great thing. And it was that um, difference, that people had different ideas that made it so subversive, not just that it was critical, but that people could have different opinions. So the Soviets got word of this. And soon, when it was finished, Boris sent it out to the state publishers. And so what happened in the Soviet Union is you had to submit to the state publishers before it was allowed to be published anywhere else in the world. And being the most famous living Soviet author at the time, he sent it off and it was absolute crickets, no word, um, which is highly, highly unusual. And months passed and he quickly realized that this, this is not going to happen. This is not going to be published. And so I will get into more kind of like the backstory of what happened later on in the presentation. But it did make its way out of the country and into the hands of the Italians, um, which I'll go into more. Um, and when this was all going on, the United States which is fresh out of World War II and now firmly in a new Cold War. Its political leaders were looking for ways to demonstrate American superiority over the East. And what better ways, thought the newly formed CIA, than through art and literature? This is actually a picture in Washington, D.C. on East Street in downtown D.C. of the old CIA headquarters before Langley became its headquarters. And it still exists up on the hill. Um, there's big black gates there now, and it's unmarked. <laughs> but they say it's the State Department now. Well, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but indeed, art and literature can be very powerful tools. They've certainly changed my own life. That's me. <laughs> From an early age, my parents instilled within me a lifelong love of reading. Growing up in a small town in western Pennsylvania, my mother would take me to the Greensburg-Henfield Area Library once a week to pick out a stack of books to take home. And as a teenager, one of my first jobs was in a bookstore. It was from those early experiences with books that I first realized that beyond the borders of my own life, there were new worlds out there waiting for me to explore, and new people from different cultures and backgrounds out there waiting for me to meet. And to me, there is no greater way to create empathy than storytelling. I think books can allow us to experience other people's lives. They can allow us to visit other time periods and walk the streets of places we've never been. In essence, they build connection. So really, to me, it's no surprise that governments, seeking to control how their citizens view and experience the world, have always used words as weapons. So today, it's tweets and bots and fake news. But 60 years ago, the Soviets and the Americans use books. These are some of the books they use in addition to Zhivago. In the 1950s, the CIA began smuggling banned books behind the Iron Curtain. And in its entire books program, it actually smuggled more than 10,000 books and pamphlets behind the Iron Curtain during its time. These are some of the, some of the more well-known. Um, we have Animal Farm, Portrait of the Artist, and uh, Nabokov, who was a famous uh, exile, too. I first learned of this effort in 2014, 
after my father sent me a Washington Post article about newly declassified documents that shed the light on the CIA's Cold War era books program. What had caught his eye was his discussion of Dr. Zhivago as one of the books the agency had used to great success. And with my interest piqued, I devoured the incredible true story behind Zhivago's publication. And what I discovered was that the CIA had obtained the banned manuscript, covertly printed it, and smuggled it back into the USSR, where it was written. The first CIA memos on Zhivago described the book as the most heretical literary work by a Soviet author since Stalin's death, saying it had great propaganda value for its passive but piercing exposition of the effect of the Soviet citizen on the life of a sensitive, intelligent citizen. So this is um, some of the first documents I started uncovering during my research that are all on CIA.gov if anyone wants to take a look. But I think this is an interesting highlight of the memo. It says this book has you know, what I said, the, the propaganda value. But it says we have the opportunity to make Soviet citizens wonder what is wrong with their government when a fine literary work by the man acknowledged to be the greatest living Russian writer is not even available in his own country, in his own language, for his own people to read. And that's essentially what made Zhivago a weapon. And here's what I write about in those early memos regarding these early memos about Zhivago and the secrets we kept. The memo passed through SR faster than word of a break room tryst during one of our martini soaked Christmas parties and spawned at least half a dozen additional memos, each seconding the first, that this was not just a book, but a weapon, and one the agency wanted to obtain and smuggle back behind the Iron Curtain for its own citizens to detonate. That, of course, is a fictionalized account, but really it was seeing these memos with their blacked out and redacted names and details that first inspired me to want to fill in the blanks with fiction. So the first voice that came to me when I was thinking of envisioning this as a novel was because of those redacted documents. And I kept thinking, who were the people that had typed these memos and reports and knew those, what was behind the redactions. They knew the secrets of these secret keepers. And so I started thinking of the typist in the agency's Soviet Russia division. And this is an old um, image that the CIA released of the typing pool during that time. It, I'm not sure, it doesn't say if it's the SR division or not, but it's still a good depiction. So years before pursuing my dream to become a novice, as I said, a novelist, as I said before, I had a successful career as a political consultant. I was living and working in DC, and I knew what my own experience in that world had been like, marked by sexism and inappropriate behavior, surrounded by powerful men with very big egos. And I imagined what it must have been like for these women in the 1950s, long before women's liberation, more than half a century before me too. With that background, as I began writing, I imagine all the idealistic Ivy League men at the CIA who are working on the mission, and behind them, the women in the typing pool. And while most eyes gravitate towards the famous men in the spotlight, I've always been more intrigued by the women in the background. So I chose to focus my story on those women, telling it first through their voice. And I'm gonna read um, an excerpt. It's just the beginning of the novel. And it's a, a voice of the typist. So the only thing you have to know is if I say agency, that means the CIA. The typists. 
We typed 100 words per minute and never missed a syllable. Our identical desks were each equipped with a mint shell Royal Quiet Deluxe typewriter, a black Western electric rotary phone, and a stack of yellow steno pads. Our fingers flew across the keys. Our clacking was constant. We'd pause only to answer the phone or to take a drag of a cigarette. Some of us managed to master both without missing a beat. The men would arrive around 10. One by one, they'd pull us into their offices. We'd sit in small chairs pushed into the corners while they'd sit behind their large mahogany desks or pace the carpet while speaking to the ceiling. We'd listen, we'd record, we were their audience of one for their memos, reports, write-ups, lunch orders. Sometimes they'd forget we were there and we'd learn much more. Who was trying to box out whom? Who was making a power play? Who was having an affair? Who was in and who was out? Sometimes they'd refer to us not by name, but by hair color or body type, blondie, red, tits. We had our secret names for them too. Grabber, coffee breath, teeth. They would call us girls, but we were not. We came to the agency by way of Radcliffe, Vassar, Smith. We were the first daughters of our families to earn degrees. Some of us spoke Mandarin. Some could fly planes. Some of us could handle a Colt 1873 better than John Wayne. But all we were asked when interviewed was, can you type? It's been said that the typewriter was built for women, that to truly make the keys sing requires the feminine touch, that our narrow fingers are suited for the device, that while men lay claim to cars and bombs and rockets, the typewriter is a machine of our own. Well, we don't know about all that. But what we will say that as we typed, our fingers became extensions of our brains with no delay between the words coming out of their mouths, words they told us not to remember, and our keys slapping ink onto paper. And when you think about it like that, about the mechanics of it all, it's almost poetic, almost. But did we aspire to tension, headaches, and sore wrists and bad posture? Is that what we dreamed of in high school when studying twice as hard as the boys? Was clerical work what we had in mind when opening the fat manila envelopes containing our college acceptance letters? Or where we thought we'd be headed as we sat in those white wooden chairs on the 50-yard line, capped and gowned, receiving the rolled parchments that promised we were qualified to do so much more? Most of us viewed the job in the typing pool as temporary. We wouldn't admit it aloud, not even to each other. But many of us believed it would be a first rung toward achieving what the men got right out of college, positions as officers, our own offices with lamps that gave off a flattering light, plush rugs, wooden desks, our own typists taking down our dictation. We thought of it as a beginning, not an end, despite what we've been told all our lives. So that's the introduction to the typists, and it goes on from there. <laughs> So as I said, this is the first voice I hit upon while writing, and over the course of three and a half years, I expanded it into the secrets we kept, using the CIA's typing pool as a kind of Greek chorus to drive the narrator narrative. But as I dove deeper into my writing, I realized I was missing half the story. I subscribed to the thought, read 100 books, write one, which was certainly part of my process. I poured over book after book about the Cold War, propaganda, CIA history, 
Russian history, Boris Pasternak, and more. Then one book in particular caught my attention. A Captive of Time is the autobiography of Olga Ivanskaya, who was Boris Pasternak's mistress and muse for his character, Lara, the one I was named after. <laughs> Ivanskaya also played a pivotal role in Boris Pasternak's writing process in helping bring Zhivago to the world. Here he is, um, she's, she's on his left and her daughter's on his right. This is when he was um, in his 60s. In fact, she was twice sentenced to hard labor in the gulag for her involvement with him. After reading, reading her heroic story and all of the things she did, she gave up to support Boris Pasternak, support his writing, and help Zhivago get out into the world, I knew that I had to have a thread about Olga told through her lens. And over the years, Olga's story and reputation have been suppressed by those who wanted to protect Pasternak's legacy. As it should be said, he never left his wife um, for, for Olga. In fact, they lived a 20-minute walk apart in the Russian countryside. But above all else, I wanted to give Olga a voice once more. So I wanted to just give, um, read a tiny bit from Olga's chapter. So my book is polyphonic. There's about five different uh, voices. And the typist is one of them. Olga is another. So I'm just going to read a little bit from her section. And this is just the very beginning of her section. And she's being taken away um, to be questioned about her involvement with Boris Pasternak and questioned to see what he was writing. The Muse. When the men in black suits came, my daughter offered them tea. The men accepted, polite as invited guests. But when they began emptying my desk drawers onto the floor, pulling books off the shelf by the armful, flipping mattresses, rifling through closets, Ira took the whistling kettle off the stove and put the teacups and saucers back in the cupboard. When one man carrying a large crate ordered the other men to box up anything useful, my youngest, Mitya, went onto the balcony where he kept his pet hedgehog. He swaddled, swaddled her inside his sweater as if the men would box up his pet too. One of the men, the one who would later let his hands lie down my backside while putting me into their black car, put his hand atop Mitya's head and called him a good boy. Mitya, gentle Mitya, pushed the man's hand off in one violent movement and retreated into the bedroom he shared with his sister. My mother, who'd been in the bath when the men arrived, emerged wearing just a robe, her hair still wet, her face flushed. I told you this would happen. I told you they would come. The men ransacked my letters from Boris, my notes, food lists, newspaper clippings, magazines, books. I told you he would bring us nothing but pain, Olga. Before I could respond, one of the men took hold of my arm, more like a lover than someone sent to arrest me, and with his breath hot against my neck, said it was time to go. I froze. It took the howls of my children to snap me back into the moment. The door shut behind us, but their howls grew louder still. The car made two left turns, then a right, then another right. I didn't have to look out the window to know where the men in black suits were taking me. I felt sick, and I told the man next to me who smelled like fried onions and cabbage. He opened the window. 
a small kindness. But the nausea persisted, and when the big yellow brick building came into view, I gagged. As a child, I was taught to hold my breath and clear my thoughts when walking past Lubyanka. It was said the Ministry for State Security could tell if you harbored any anti-Soviet thoughts. At the time, I had no idea what anti-Soviet thoughts were. The car went through a roundabout and then through the gate into Lubyanka's inner courtyard, my mouth filled with bile, which I quickly swallowed. The men seated next to me moved as far away from me as they could. The car stopped. What's the tallest building in Moscow? The man who smelled like onions and cabbage asked, opening the door. I felt another wave of nausea, bent forward, emptying my breakfast of fried eggs onto the cobblestones, just missing the man's dull black shoes. It's Lubyanka, of course. They say you can see all the way to Siberia from the basement. The second man laughed and put out his cigarette on the bottom of his shoe. I spat twice and wiped the mouth, my mouth with the back of my hand. Um, and so that is the opening to Olga's section when she gets taken to Lubyanka, where she's then interrogated about what is this book Boris Pasternak's writing. But I also wanted to give a voice to the long forgotten women spies of the early CIA, women to whom monuments should be built to mark their courage and contributions. This is actually an object I um, was given. It's from actually Betty McIntosh and her name um, right there is Elizabeth Pete Hepin Hepner. And this is a canceled passport from when she was traveling throughout Burma and other countries um, as part of the OSS um, as a spy. And so she was one of the inspirations. During World War II, women had served as intelligence officers in the OSS. But after the war, those same women were stuck behind desks at the CIA. In my novel, the characters Sally and Irina were very much inspired by real spies like Elizabeth Betty McIntosh and Virginia Hall. I don't know, does anyone know who Virginia Hall is? There's a really good nonfiction non book about her um, right now called A Woman of No Importance. Um, that's her in the middle. Um, she's fascinating to me because she fought on the front lines during World War II. Um, she had a prosthetic leg um, the whole time. She lost her leg in a hunting accident as a kid. And it didn't, never slowed her down. She called the leg cuff birth. Um, and so I have kind of a shout out to her in the book and cuff birth. Um, but it is, she's one of these women that after the war and the CIA was formed, she was put behind the desk, even though she was obviously kind of a badass back in the war. <laughs> and Sally and Arena's love story was very much inspired by real events as well. A little known aspect of American history is the Lavender Scare, which took place within the United States beginning in the 1950s. Just as it became standard practice for the federal government to fire suspected communists during the Red Scare, the Lavender Scare saw suspected LGBTQ individuals removed from their government jobs. Thousands were fired, with some even taking their own lives after being publicly outed in the newspaper. So at the same time, the United States was working to show Soviet citizens that their government was censoring and persecuting them, it was also persecuting employees within its own ranks. I never wanted my book to be a good guy, bad guy story, and so like this other story was important to show that even though we were using books to show Soviet citizens that they weren't free and that we were, you know, they were being held back by their government, there was these things going on in our government at the same time. <laughs> this is my trip to Moscow. 
The result of my research, as well as my travel to Russia, DC, London, and Paris while writing, is a polyphonic novel that's driven by strong women's voices and that, like Dr. Zhivago, is about war, propaganda, persecution, but above all else, love. It's about the experience and feelings we all share, no matter what time or place we come from. It's about using history as a tool to understand the present. As Boris Pasternak once wrote, it's past, you'll understand it later. And for me, in a time when there's so much talk of building walls and rhetoric emphasizing all that makes us different, it is almost a revolutionary act to imagine what makes us similar. To me, that's the power of books and the power of storytelling. And so, yeah, this is Boris's quote. I wrote the novel in order for it to be published and read, and that remains my only desire. Um, and I just wanted to show a few more items from my collection of things I collected and just more of the story of this like crazy, almost stranger than fiction, true life story of Zhivago. That's Boris Pasternak shortly after he won the Nobel Prize. In fact, that's right after he learned he won the Nobel Prize. He was out on a walk in the country um, outside his home in Perro del Quino. And he won the Nobel Prize during this whole scandal of the CIA smuggling it back in. And of course, this was a big coup for the CIA. That's his home in Perro del Quino. Um, when I went and visited, it's about a 20 minute train ride outside of Moscow. Um, and you can't see because of the snow, but he had a huge garden. He was a big gardener. Um, and uh, many Soviets were, and some Russians still are, in providing own, their own food. And so he had a huge garden and orchard um, off to the side of this picture. But writers during this time, this was a writer's colony, and some of the most famous living Soviet writers were given a house and this huge luxury in this writer's colony in the country so that they could work. Um, and, but it was also a way to keep an eye on those writers. In fact, in fact, his next door neighbor was drug out in the street and shot. Other people had been taken to the gulag, and Boris um, you know, actually was saved by Stalin liking his poetry. So this is a man named Sergio D'Angelo, which he's a fascinating man. He has self-published his own account of this true life tale because when Boris knew that his book wasn't gonna be published in the Soviet Union, Sergio, who had been a scout for the editor, um, Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli in Italy, came to the, that red house in Perro del Quino and asked if the Italians could have the manuscript to publish in Italy after it was published in the Soviet Union as what was required. And Boris, who didn't know him at all, gave him the manuscript. And he said when he handed his manuscript to Sergio that you were hereby invited to my execution. And he was a funny, he had a dark sense of humor, Boris Pasternak. In fact, when he was under constant surveillance, he would like speak into his lamp or speak into the doorknob and say, hi, how are you today? And you know, because he knew his house was bugged. But um, Feltrinelli actually got the manuscript. Sergio smuggled it out into East Berlin and then into West Berlin and met Feltrinelli in West Berlin and handed the manuscript off. And Feltrinelli was pressured by the Soviet state to return the manuscript. He was not allowed to keep it, but he held true. And he refused to do it. And he knew that Boris would eventually be pressured into signing a letter to ask it back by the Soviet state. And he said, Boris and him worked out this thing where if he wrote, if Boris wrote Feltrinelli in Russian, he was to ignore those letters because he knew that would be a pressured letter from the state. 
and only to trust the letters written in French. So that was their secret code. But he published it in 1957. This is another memo, which I just kind of details the CIA following that Feltrinelli has it and published it. And it came out at the end of 1957. And then it also says that number five, it says the microfilm was given to Mr. Blank for photostat reproduction, two copies on 10 January 1958. So they got this microfilm that came to the United States of the Russian edition. No one really knows who gave it to them, but many people think the British gave it to them. British intelligence. And this is the first, this is actually my first edition Italian copy of Dr. Zhivago. It's like my prized possession. <laughs> and this is a brochure I collected. This is the um, Hotel Continental, which I just visited. I was in Milan last week. And I got to visit some of these sites, which I didn't get to while I was writing my book. And this is where the launch party for Dr. Zhivago was held. And this is a copy of the CIA's edition of Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> and this is um, a plain linen cover. I do not own this. It was actually, this, is, this would be a real prize. It was actually recently one of the editions auctioned off last year at Chrissy's. I think it was $25,000 for one of these. And the, note that the, the cover is intact, which is important because the CIA used, and this is all in my novel, it seems like a, a movie for real. They used the Brussels World's Fair as a staging ground to give that blue linen copy to Soviet visitors. And this is a picture of the, uh, the Brussels World's Fair. Right here is the Vatican Pavilion. Right there, the UFO-looking building is the United States Pavilion. And right here, which you can't really see, is the Soviet Pavilion. So this is like all right here. A lot of stuff going on during that fair. And the, the Americans teamed up with the Vatican, as they would to have priests and clergy people, um, CIA members dressed as priests and clergymen, in that building identifying Soviet visitors and handing them a copy of that blue linen book. And pretty soon, it was such a success, that blue linen cover was ripped off and it was littering the steps of the Vatican Pavilion because they would take the linen cover off, divide it, and put it in their pockets. Because they knew that this was you know, to smuggle it back home. This is a ticket that I got of the, uh, for the World's Fair. And this is a really funny, um, this is the Soviet Pavilion brochure, which I also got. <laughs> and the best thing about it is it has this map um, of the, the pavilions, but the <laughs> Vatican and the US Pavilion aren't listed. <laughs> Even you can see the red mark, that's the USSR, and they have Canada over there, but they don't have, they don't have the US, it's funny. Um, but yeah, you could see at the, at the Russian or Soviet pavilion, you could see a copy of Sputnik. You could see an atomic icebreaker and all kinds of cool stuff. They really made a point also to emphasize that women were equals in the Soviet Union, um, which was kind of a dig at the United States. Um, and this is just a list of the, the first printings of that blue linen cover and where they were taken to. So 365 copies were sent to Brussels. Um, and distributed to Soviet visitors at the Brussels World's Fair. And there was a few others. And during this time, so Boris's book is free and, and is coming out all over the world. He becomes extremely famous. He knocks Lolita off the top of the New York Times bestseller list, much to Nabokov's chagrin because he hated Boris Pasternak and hated Dr. Zhivago <laughs> and criticized it. Um, and I, I love him for that. 
Um, and so the CIA, you know, seeing these copies in the Soviet Union, as soon as they get back, they're being copied in kitchens and basements and they're on the black market within moments. And everyone wants to read this banned book. This is, this is a little thing that I included. The top, this is kind of cut out. It talks about um, how they want to distribute Zhivago for maximum free world discussion and acclaim and consideration for such an honor as the Nobel Prize. And Boris wins the Nobel Prize. Um, whether the CIA has anything to do with it, that's suspect, just because Boris was actually routinely considered for the Nobel Prize for years because of his poetry. But he, he wins the Nobel Prize. That's him right after learning. That's his wife sitting here, and he's toasting. He's very happy. But a few days later, he's pressured to turn it down. Turns down the Nobel Prize. Considering the meaning this award has been given in the society to which I belong, I must reject this undeserved prize, which has been pressed to me. Please do not receive my voluntary rejection with displeasure. And the CIA sees this as another way to maximize propaganda about him having to turn down the Nobel Prize. How can we maximize the effort? And this is, yeah, this is just another way, you know, how can we discuss it when we're pitching, basically pitching newspapers like the Washington Post because they were all friends. And it says, stress fact that Pasternak Russian avoid reference to him being Soviet, which I think is interesting. This is like talking points for the reporters. And yeah, it was all over the press that this is this huge affair and turning down the Nobel just increased the sales. And the CIA had another printing, and this is, this is my copy, so I have this. It's the miniature edition of Dr. Zhivago. Um, and so this is after the blue linen cover, they're like, we need to make this smaller because this is just a little too cumbersome. So she printed these very small, small miniature editions that could fit in your pocket and Actually, like the, the pages are paper thin, so they're like Bible stock. So they printed more. This is, starts getting more and more attention. And Boris Pasternak, unfortunately, he dies not soon after he wins the Nobel Prize and has to reject it. His health just quickly, quickly declines. And this is a picture of his funeral. And actually, when I was in Paro del Quino, I got to visit his grave, which was a really moving experience. And years and years pass. The movie comes out. Zhivago just cements itself in history. Um, and it's not until 1988 that Zhivago is able to be printed and sold in the Soviet Union. So almost 50 years pass before, 40 years pass before it's able to be read there. And his son, Boris Pasternak's son, in 1989, accepts the Nobel Prize on his father's behalf. And then this is just another note of the CIA's um, from their website that talks about their success with this mission. It says, at the height of the Cold War, the pen proved mightier than the sword. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Laura Prescott and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how long Olga spent in concentration camps. Yeah, so Olga was sentenced to five years 
She got out in three because Stalin died in 1953 and they released thousands of political prisoners at that time. But then she was later sentenced after Boris Pasternak died to the Gulag again. Um, and she served five years that time. This audience member asked about how familiar Boris Pasternak was with Sergio D'Angelo before handing over his manuscript. Well, from D'Angelo's papers, and his, he didn't know him at all. Um, D'Angelo worked for Radio Moscow as an Italian, um, but he was also, as I said, this literary scout for Felcinelli, and he had heard on the radio that Pasternak was writing this book and just decided, without an appointment, to go to, because Boris didn't have a telephone, to just go to his country house and talk to him. And that's the first time they met. And D'Angelo, of course, you know, they had many interactions after that, especially D'Angelo and Olga, because Olga served as kind of his literary agent um, and trying to get the manuscript back, actually. But yeah, Boris didn't really really know that much about him, other than that he, the, this might be the way out. They called Boris, Boris Pasternak, and one of the reasons they said Stalin saved him and, and struck him from his purge list because you know thousands of writers were killed during Stalin's purges, including many of Boris's close friends. And they say that he was struck from the purge list because he was called a holy fool, which I don't know if there's any other Russian literature uh, scholars in the audience, but holy fool, or knows the term holy fool, but it's basically someone like, almost a saint-like person whose head's in the clouds. Um, they have this genius gift, but they're totally harmless and kind of not with it mentally. Um, and so he called him a holy fool in the cloud dweller. So Boris was known for kind of these almost erratic acts um, and just, just, you know, he handed this book off and, and joke, you know, you're invited my execution, but he, he kind of meant it too. This question is about Prescott's trip to Russia and the amount of freedom she was given to research for her book. In Russia, I got, so I was in graduate school during the writing of this, and I could only go to Russia for about two weeks, and this was due to budget concerns. Um, I wouldn't say there was any restrictions on me writing it other than the KGB's records are kind of spotty detailing their surveillance of Pasternak and also why Olga was in prison. There's very little records that have been released about it. So it was much about like relying on primary resources and people's accounts of what happened. Um, it is a, yeah, it's a, it's a country where, how can I say, it, it, it does feel like if, I don't know if it was because I worked in politics or what, but I had my passport mi missing at one point, and there's like a whole other novel in there, but, <laughs> but it is coming out in Russia. My book is coming out in Russian um, in 2020, so, so not a lot of restrictions. This audience member wonders if Prescott knew she would tell this story from several points of view when she started writing. No, I thought I would be able to write it from the CII typist point of view, the whole thing. Actually, before that, I thought I was just going to do like a third person omniscient that could go anywhere. Um, but it was really that first draft of me trying things out and failing at a lot of it. I have a lot of voices that didn't make it into the final novel. Um, but then I really like polyphonic novels. Um, some of my favorite recent novels are polyphonic. The Known World by Edward P. Jones is one of them. Um, so it was pretty interesting to try to attempt that as well. 
Our next question is if Laura Prescott had met anyone from the typing pool while writing the book. I actually, not while I was writing the book, although I did speak with, I, I read a lot of papers and, 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 and books about them, but I was recently contacted by someone who was in the typing pool, and I'm talking with her soon, and she said that she loved my book, and I don't know, it was such an honor, and she said she even has the, the old um, pay stubs to prove that she worked in the CIA at this E Street complex, so this was in the 50s. They moved to Langley in 1959 or 1960, both of those years, so she was there during that time, and, she, and so I'm excited to hear what she has to say. Um, I had a family friend who, and, and her, his great aunt worked for the FBI during that time and gave me a lot of interesting tidbits, tidbits too, but. There's still, there's some of them still alive. A lot of retired CIA people live in Florida. <laughs> they do, they do, <laughs> which is another novel idea. <laughs> yes. Another audience member inquires if any of the typists advanced to be officers in the CIA. Some of them did, but really, really not, not, um, not, it would be highly unusual for that to happen. Some of them are given more responsibilities, but never, um, having people work under them. In fact, Dulles had this thing called the Petticoat Panel, which was a whole evaluation of if women are being underutilized in the CIA. And this was written in 1953, so it was very progressive of Dulles to even do this. And so many, there was a lot of personal accounts by women saying they were so much more qualified than their male counterpoints, and then they'd interview the men and say, I will not work for a woman, and then that issue was closed. Um, so no, and even, I would, it's an amazing to see that now we have a, a woman at the head of the CIA, but um, these, you know, this is all still a huge imbalance, even now, yeah. This question is if the CIA played a role in the movie adaptation of Dr. Zhivago. I would think so. <laughs> so I don't have proof of that, but I would think that, I mean, the CIA ha did have its hands in a lot of forms of culture during that time. Um, is the you know they called it the cultural cold war and soft propaganda they would sponsor abstract art exhibitions around the world with the likes of Jackson Pollock they would sponsor jazz musicians to tour Europe they would sponsor ballets all of these things so it wouldn't be unusual if maybe they received some funding but I will say the movie wasn't as hard-hitting as the book so it, it didn't have that um, subversiveness I think that the book does our next audience member asks about Prescott's research process and how she was able to get her hands on CIA documents. So the, the cool thing about it was, so I first found out about it from a Washington Post article in 2014, and the, the, the authors of that article had done the, the FOIA request to get these articles, or these memos and reports released. And so in conjunction with this article, the 99 documents were put online. And so I just went online and started reading about them. And then those authors of that article published a nonfiction book, which is great, called The Zhivago Affair. So if you want more of the nonfiction side of it, that they do a huge um, deep dig into that mission. Um, but yeah, um, there's probably a lot of documents that aren't released, but there was about 99 of them to go through. Anyone can go online. This question is about the Hollywood adaptation of Laura Prescott's book. So, you know, Hollywood's strange because it's not done until it's, you know, it's released. <laughs> um, but I, I'm not involved in writing the screenplay. I will be an executive producer. 
um, and a consultant, but he, I mean, it's who knows what, if it will happen or not. They're thinking maybe television, a miniseries, so. Which I think is really cool, because I think a lot of the great adaptations in recent years have been television, because you can tell so much more of a novel that way. But we'll see. I don't know. I don't have any like high hopes, but you know, they, they I mean, not that I think it's not going to be made. It's just it's not. It's Hollywood, so you just don't know until the stars line up, literally, for it. So, but it is looking. It's just looking like it could happen. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what Laura Prescott is reading. Oh, what am I reading? So I'm reading Elena Ferrante's. Um, I'm reading her first book because I'm getting ready for her new book. I think it's not out in English yet, but she published in Italy last week, so I was inspired while I was there to, to read it. Yeah. Does anyone like her? She's, she's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That wraps up our St. Paul Public Library, St. Anthony Park event with Laura Prescott, and that will wrap up our fall 2019 club book season. Make sure to check back with us in January as we announce our winter-spring 2020 season lineup with more great authors. Podcasts of our previous discussions can be found on our website and iTunes, so if you have a minute, check them out. Over the past 12 seasons, we have had some incredible writers speak about their work, their process, and their journey. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.